0: They want me to get rid of my dog. Can they do that? I'm being fine for leaving my garage door open too long. What are covenants? Do I have any rights? Help, I feel like I've left the American zone.
1: If you want the answers to those questions, join me, Sue Bartholomew, and my guests on The Commons every Saturday from 2 to 3 right here on WBR Fairfax Radio. We'll ask the experts and we'll untangle the truth about what's left of our property rights. On the Commons is a weekly radio show dedicated to discussing the many issues surrounding mandatory membership homeowners associations. Join us as we explore this relatively new world of controlled living, which includes condominiums, cooperatives, and both attached and detached single-family homes. Living in a common ownership development means giving up the American dream. It means giving up your constitutional rights and control over your most valuable asset, your home. Living in a homeowner's association means leaving the American zone. This is On the Commons, and I am Shu Bartholomew. W.E.B.R. Fairfax Radio. We've got a new name, but it's still the same great programming and my wonderful guests, and today we're joined by Dr. Evan McKenzie. Evan, thank you so much for coming on with us today.
2: Oh, my pleasure, Sue, anytime.
1: Well, you've got a new book coming up. We've all been waiting for a follow-up to uh, Privatopia, and it's here finally.
2: Yep, just came out.
1: And uh, can you, I haven't got my copy yet, it's on order, but um, can you tell us a little bit about it? I feel a little lost because I can't really talk to you about the book.
2: Okay, that's not a problem. Well, it's, uh, it's called Beyond Privatopia, Rethinking Residential Private Government, and it's published by Urban Institute Press in Washington, D.C. And um, it's uh, I put up on my blog on privatopia.blogspot.com, a link to the um, a link to it, so that you can you can buy the book from the publisher. Actually, the only reliable way to buy it right now is from the publisher because um, it's just come off the presses in the last few days, and I don't think Amazon or Barnes and Noble actually have any in stock. So, if you want it, the the, the way to get it is to um, is to use the link and go straight to Urban Institute Press okay. and buy it directly from them.
1: And it's on privatopia.blogspot.com, and they can go there.
2: Yeah, that's my weblog, and I have—I just posted a link, a direct link that you can click. That takes you right to Urban Institute Press, and the right up on the book, and the, it's the order page.
1: Cool. So, tell us a little bit about the book. Like I said, we've all been waiting for right. the follow-up on uh, Privatopia. Sure.
2: Well, and bit-
1: Privatopia came out when in 1992. Ninety-four.
2: Ninety-four, okay. Well, I've done... I, 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 most people don't know this, but I've written a lot about this subject since then. I, I just wasn't in book form, so a lot of the people who just buy books and don't read or, bu- or buy, subscribe to academic journals wouldn't know. But I've written a lot of book chapters and journal articles on this topic um, that have been in various books published in around the world in Europe and so forth, and I've written journal articles for various journals in this country and elsewhere about this topic. So I I'd done a lot of thinking and my views on a lot of things had uh, changed over time. And um so I finally decided to put some of the new ideas together in a book and it's not everything in the book is new. It's not that um I didn't just it's not a collection of articles. It's all it's a book, but um I'd thought a lot of things through and seen a lot of things differently and um, basically uh the originally when I was when I wrote Privatopia it seemed to me, and I think it was true, actually, that the driving force behind common interest housing really was uh, real estate developers and that they were, uh, it was a, it, a form of privatization that was that was very convenient and very lucrative for real estate developers. And I explained how and why that practice evolved over time, really starting in the 1800s and then accelerating, uh, certainly after the 1960s, as land got scarce, suburban land got scarce, and they began to try to increase density. But what happened was, after, in the years after the book came out, I was going around giving talks here and there, the National League of Cities and various places, and reading what was happening. It became obvious to me that, that the driving force really was not just the developers, that increasingly municipalities were um, very enthusiastic about this type of housing. So... And that is what I think uh, caused me. That was the first thing that really caused me to start thinking that that this was evolving. This phenomenon was evolving in a in a different way, because I had thought, and a lot of libertarians had thought that you, you should view common interest housing developments as a competitor with municipalities. It makes perfect sense. And in, in this new book, I talk a lot about that perspective. I have a whole chapter on that perspective. Um, it's it's not that it's wrong. It's just that. There's a lot, it's more complicated, because it's not just that they're competing with um, municipalities. Municipalities have responded, and, and counties have responded to the spread of, of common interest housing by, in a sense, embracing it in a number of places and it, even requiring it. And, and I know your, your listeners are very familiar with this, but you have to look at the whole phenomenon differently. I mean, if, there, if it's a competitor, then why are cities telling developers, we don't want you to build anything else? You have to build this way. We demand it. We insist on it. And so I began to write about this, and, and I've been saying this for years and years. It's not something I just said in this book. I've been saying it in these articles and so forth for, for you know, a long time, that, that this has become a part of the structure of local government. This type of housing has been built into the structure of local government. And so you have to look at it differently. It's not a question of replacing municipalities. Municipalities... Have, are forming, a lot of them, a much more structured relationship and they, with these, these private developments, and they're using them in certain ways. So the basic argument that I made in this book is, uh, is I can summarize it pretty quick, I guess. It's not too complicated. That First, um, that common interest housing developments aren't really private, and they aren't really public, and they don't really fit neatly into any institutional sector at all. So all these theories, such as the libertarian theories, the neoclassical economics theories, the rational choice theories, that say they're private, they insist over and they're private, that's just a fundamental error. They, they simply are not private. They are not private entities, and, and not in any sense. But they're not completely public, either. They're not fully governmental. They're in between, and that's just the way we, we have to accept that. They're a hybrid institution that has a lot of uh, amb- ambiguity. Uh, second... Um, I I do not believe that common interest housing developments are in the process of replacing municipalities, which Robert Nelson uh, argues, and a lot of libertarians have argued, that they're going to replace cities with, uh, well, in some areas where there really aren't existing cities, where places like, you know, uh, areas where they've put subdivisions in the desert and this sort of thing, there aren't any municipalities, sure. But the idea that that private government is going to completely replace uh, municipal governance um, is I, I just fundamentally wrong in my opinion that's not actually what's happening at all um, the local government policy toward these things has shifted initially there was skepticism now they're promoting them uh, they can cities can benefit fiscally from forcing the new residential development into these private communities and i've we've talked a lot about that over the years shu but you know yeah. they're getting a huge tax windfall these are cash cows uh, and that's the that's the expression that a, a city manager used when i discussed this some years back, he says they're cash cows. Yeah. They're just flat cash cows. They're making money off it. So to say that they're putting them out of business is just simply not the way it's going. That's They're, they're embracing them. And then, the, how, so what is it? How would you look at it? Well, I would say there's kind of an institutional convergence going on where um, increasingly the common interest housing developments are becoming more governmental in their powers uh, and in certainly, and I think also in the way they're being regulated, where they're being regulated in... Some states more as if they were governmental, and local governments are increasingly taking on a lot of the attributes of private corporations. I mean, they're uh, they're they're actually emulating gated communities in many cases. We have cities uh, or residential neighborhoods trying to practice the exclusive ta- tactics and the gating and that sort of thing, and the surveillance tactics. You know, putting up. Uh, Surveillance cameras on every entrance into the town, mm-hmm. on public streets. Yes. Well, they're they're emulating gated communities in order to to um, enhance their attractiveness to people who who think that sort of thing is good for property values or who are afraid of of other people. And and then at the same time, state legislatures across the nation are have always practiced this kind of laissez-faire attitude until recently toward um, common interest housing developments you know well you know you made a deal and you're stuck with the deal you made with the developer right. and uh, everything's civil and uh, you know don't talk to us about criminal law violations even if they're robbing you blind because this is all civil and you know you and agreed. Why, yeah you agreed to everything right well a lot as you know a lot of state legislatures are, are have shifted away from that they're taking a much harsher much harder look at common interest housing developments. And that's in part because there's just the relentless push uh, they're getting from the press and from interest from, from the Pink Flamingo groups and so forth who, who are who are exposing the things that have been going on in these developments, the outrages that have taken place with these, uh, these amateur governments and in some cases uh, co- corrupt activities going on, theft of money and uh, all sorts of other things. Well, this is... This is getting into the press again and again and again. And so politicians eventually, it's like, you know, water dripping on a rock. Eventually it, it begins to make a dent in these people. And they eventually, you know, they, to, to change their perception and to see there really is a systemic problem. It isn't just isolated instances. And that was always the argument. You know, when my first book came out, CAI and these other people were running around saying, oh, well, he just listed 20 or 30 specific instances yeah. of mis- <laughs> uh, you know, misconduct. Well, okay, I could list two or 300 yeah. And, and they'd say the same thing, or two oh, 3,000, yeah. and they'd say the same thing. It's goes on and on and on and on. Yeah. And I think state legislatures are, have begun to get the picture. Uh, I mean, some of them are bought and paid for by various industries, but the point oh, is yeah. at least some legislatures, some legislators, understand this. So in a number of states like Florida and California, to some extent Arizona, maybe even places like Texas, uh, uh, New Jersey, uh, you know there's a uh, around the country, even Illinois. There's a steady push toward increased regulation. That's clearly the direction we're going in. We're not going in the opposite direction of less regulation that the libertarians want us to go in. It's going in the direction of more regulation. And if you look at the quality, at the nature of the regulations that come from these state legislatures, they're treating these associations more as if they were governmental Mm -hmm. in terms of exposure of their records and open meetings and fair elections and this sort of thing. So that's why I talk about convergence. And, but oh, so that's, that's the direction that public policy and private action seem to be taking. However, um, the other major point that I, I think needs to be made here is that that the fragility of this entire institution, because as I've said, I know to you a number of times, Sue, I, I keep using this analogy. This whole institution is like a pyramid that's turned upside down and balanced on the point. Mm-hmm. because everything comes down to the individual owner at the bottom of the of the pyramid the point of this pyramid that's standing on its tip that little tip that's, that everything depends upon is the individual owner and the, the, everything else the securitization of mortgages the provision of public services all these things that are happening this huge array of functions that are supposed to be performed by and through these associations and the residents through the payment of their, their mortgages and their assessments, all this stuff, it all rests on the individual owner. And it rests on their financial resources, paying their assessments. It rests on their willingness to accept this constrained type of living as opposed to just you know, fighting and suing and having to be forced into compliance. It it requires, or it depends upon and assumes they will be loyal to their association, loyal to their community. It assumes they'll volunteer and want to serve on the board, you know. And it assumes, as Tyler Birding has pointed out, uh, who I think is really a very sharp guy, that there's a fundamental flaw here, which is that you can trust people to adequately fund the association today in order to reconstruct roofs and so forth in 20 years. Well, you know, when you look at the, uh, the financial situation that people are in in this country right now, that isn't a realistic assumption at all to assume that today we'll, we'll call in or an actuary or somebody and do a reserve study and jack our assessments way up so somebody else we don't even know can buy a roof in 20 years or, or repave the streets in, in 10 years. I mean, th- th- this is a fundamental flaw. These associations are, in my opinion, almost invariably under-reserved they, they there are not adequate resources either in money or in time or in energy or in loyalty or dedication or volunteerism to keep them running, and uh, moreover the expertise gap which we've talked about again and again is
1: huge. Yeah,
2: the government just keeps cre- government at all levels keeps encouraging and creating these little private governments, forces owners to run them for nothing, and then doesn't do anything to train them, and doesn't do anything except in a very few states to help them resolve their quarrels, and they're supposed to go off and, and, and spend $200,000 in seven years of civil litigation to get access to their records or to, uh, to get their assessments set correctly or to have open meetings or the simplest thing. Well, this is completely unsustainable. This this way of doing things is in fact unsustainable. Not just you know I don't mean ecologically. I mean in just in human terms, it's unsustainable. I agree. And, and I think anyone should be able to see that. But that's the big that's the big picture. And so what I'm trying to say is that, uh, you know this institution ultimately is part of a whole trend in our society. Uh, there's been this battle that's been going on certainly since the time of the New Deal between. You know, government and uh, the private sector, government trying to regulate activities of the private sector, and corporates, big corporations trying to get their freedom from government by by any means that they can possibly come up with, Uh, offshoring jobs, moving their, their, uh, their income stream to the Bahamas, you know, all these things, anything, anything to get out from under government control. And one of those major efforts is privatization. I mean, the effort—the recent effort by the Republicans, the vote by the Republicans in the House of Representatives, they actually voted to privatize Medicare, turn it into a voucher program. They actually voted. A majority of people in the House of Representatives voted to do that. And now they're trying to pretend they didn't, but they did. Well, this, this whole privatization movement that's been going on since Margaret Thatcher is one of these attempts by corporations to get out from under government, to get out from democratic control, you know, to operate in, in uh according to the rules of the marketplace and free of the voters, free of um uh interference from any government or any kind of oversight. And this type of housing is a is a significant part of that whole movement. So it's not you know, we look at it we tend to look at it in isolation, it's not. It's part of something much, much larger and in all these issues uh, these privatization debates that go on, whether it be the parking meters in Chicago, um, the tollways, the uh, and on and on, all these things that are there are proposals to privatize uh, vouchers for schools and Medicare and everything. There's always it always comes down to certain key points, and I think the same prevail the same points prevail here, which is if you want a thing done, how does the government retain and and we're going to try to save money in doing it by having some contractor do it. How does the government maintain accountability to public standards? And they don't. And they don't. That's the whole problem, ultimately. It's the, it's the problem with many forms of privatization is inadequate government, uh, government-insured accountability. And that's what has to be done, I think. Uh, if it isn't done, if the a, if a government don't take some responsibility for the training and the conflict resolution and, and the, crimin- the criminality and the other things that are going on, if they don't, well i don't think there's any fix for the housing market generally I don't think that that this this institution that we have is uh, common interest housing is particularly viable uh, in the long run and you can look at the number of projects that are in trouble around the country, and there are many 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 of them that are in huge trouble
1: and uh, yeah and they keep growing daily
2: yeah yeah and and, and yeah. you know they may, just because the the local newspapers rarely talk about it by the way, they do here in Chicago. We've had a number of articles on distressed condo projects oh, yeah. at, in the Chicago Tribune. It's it's only beginning, I would argue. I think this is only beginning.
1: Well, I think this whole privatization, going back to what you were talking about a minute ago, it, they're not only just privatizing housing and residential areas, but actually city streets. Yes there was a whole article a whole nonsense thing that came up in Silver Spring because they discovered that the city of Silver Spring Maryland had actually leased or sold the downtown area to a private to a private entity and this private entity then decided that the tourists could not take photos there they were confiscating cameras and you know Mm -hmm. threatening them because they were taking pictures and all of a sudden this whole thing came to light i said wait a minute but i had a friend um a a very close attorney or a very close friend who was an attorney the attorney who litigated the gilman case and he used to say to me, "Shu," and this was going back 20 plus years ago he says mark my words all they're doing here is the local municipal governments are distancing themselves away from from their constituents. They're becoming royalty. They don't want to deal with the hoi polloi.
2: <laughs>
1: and and that, yeah. he's absolutely true. I think of that quite often. I think of his words quite often. He says, you mark my words. That's where we're headed.
2: Well, um, yeah, I, I think there's that may be where they think they're headed. <laughs> um, you know, I, my view of this is that you, on the one hand, if you, it's like two lines. One of the lines is this direction you're describing, where there's an institutional convergence going on or these municipalities and these officials who think that this approach to development is so clever because they can keep making the government bigger. They can keep increasing the right. size of government. They can keep generating revenues. Despite the fact that they're getting all these signals from people that they're overtaxed, that they don't have any money, that they don't want anything, that they want certain services cut or whatever it is, they can keep doing this. They can keep, ex- and I, I think of it as an extension of local government. Basically, they can keep extending local government, extending social control by working out these weird relationships with private governments that do a lot of this stuff for them, collect revenues, and all this. Okay, so on the one end you have this line going ahead. If you projected that line ahead, you'd say, well, this is just going to continue forever. But nothing in human affairs ever goes in a linear fashion. That's the way it seems to me. Uh, it, it never works that way. And there's another line. And that other line is, is the, the impending, the increasing dysfunction and insolvency in these associations. I mean, the, the, lo- the strategy of these local governments in places like you know, out west in Arizona, and these places where they're heavily, heavily relying and pushing this type of housing. Chicago, too, in the, in the redevelopment areas of Chicago. Um, it all depends on these associations continuing to function. And I think that's why there has been increased regulation, because belatedly, state legislatures are beginning to catch on. In part, it's a concern about consumer protection, a legitimate concern. There's also a concern about the institution collapsing. And, and that's one reason why they want to regulate them. Because they're starting to realize, I think, that this, they can't assume that these institutions will continue to function. So like, here in, um, in, the, in Illinois, they recently passed a law, in late, the late, let's say legislature passed a law called the Distressed Condominium Act, or Distressed Condominium Property Act, it's called. Because we had, they had so many, um, condo developments that were basically blighted. In some cases, there were all kinds of things that happened, Shoe. I mean, we had a lot of projects that, uh, where people were selling units that didn't even exist. I mean, you'd have a jeez. building that had 12 units in it, and they'd sell 50.
1: Oh, jeez.
2: And the appraisers, and I, by the way, I, I've talked to appraisers about this. This, uh, this is what was going on. Appraisers would drive by the building, and they wouldn't even go inside. They'd be appraising, you know, Unit 32 in a 12-unit building. And they'd drive by the outside of the building, set an appraisal that would be sure that the sale would go through, and then go on. It didn't even exist. Wonderful. Yeah. Now, so we end up with all kinds of of distressed condominium properties. The way they define it is kind of vague, but basically they say, uh, it is a, a parcel, a, a condominium parcel that contains condo units that are operated in a manner that might constitute a danger, blight, or a nuisance to the surrounding community. And then it lists a bunch of conditions, such as uh, h- half or more of the units um, full of squatters occupied by people who don't have a legal right to live there. 50% or more squatters. Wow. Uh, serious building code violations. 60% or more of the units in foreclosure. Um, there has been a recording of more units on the parcel than physically exist. That's what I was telling you about, you know. 12-unit building that has that's where they stole thirty, 30
1: Number 32,
2: huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the utilities have been cut off to more than 40% of the units or something. Uh, and uh, 60% or more of the units are in delinquency on property taxes. Now, that's, that's what they said, any two or more of those conditions. But you understand, this was so prevalent, conditions like that, were so prevalent, they actually passed a state law to address the problem. That's how many there were. Now, um, and so when that happens, the uh, if that is the case, the way it works is the municipality where the project exists can go to court, and they ask the court, in essence, to appoint a receiver to take over the property. And, uh, and at that point, the, prop, the the receiver goes and investigates the situation and has all kinds of powers to do all sorts of things but ultimately the receiver can come back to the court and say that the court ought to declare that the place is no longer a condominium and they 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 say that all the people who own the units at that point are tenants in common and and then they which means that you know your tenants in common you don't have individual units anymore I mean in a condominium you have your airspace you have exclusive title to your airspace and you have an undivided interest in the common area well if they turn it into a common into a tenancy in common then everybody owns a share of everything there are no individual units and you have to create a write a contract up to have the right to possess it because the main reason they're doing this is so they can sell it and so the court then uh, then can dispose of the building it's basically not a condo anymore and now they can the the receiver can um, have all kinds of powers can can operate the property as an apartment building. They can uh, ultimately do anything with it, collect rents, uh, and all the things that a property owner can do. And ultimately, they may sell the building. Once they've created this unity of ownership, they can just basically sell the building to a real estate syndicate, an apartment owner, something like that, and dispose of it. So basically, eradicating it as a condominium. And the project that I'm working on now, now that I've got this book out, um, I'm about to start a sabbatic, sabbatical leave for one semester. i am beyond leave. And I'm going to be working on um, finding as many different solutions like this around the country as I can. Uh, w- what are the practices that are in place and that are being suggested or that are being considered for preventing catastrophe and doing away with dysfunctional developments, condo, townhome, and also HOAs? Uh, there are a number of things that have been proposed and and in 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 around the country in fact uh, and there are different problems. It isn't just one problem um, one of the problems, for example that that is really causing many associations to suffer is foreclosures. And I know we've right. talked about that and you've done a lot of uh, you've done shows on this, but yeah. this foreclosure situation has uh, has a solution um, i think. Um, and I, I, there's, a, there's a bill in Congress right now called the Right to Rent Act. Um, the Right to Rent Act was uh, written uh, the, uh, the proposal originally came from an economist by the name of Dean Baker, and it is being introduced by a representative Raul Grijalva, who was a Democrat from Arizona. He introduced it back in 2010, and it did not it died in committee. It died in Barney Frank's Financial Services Committee for some reason. I do not know why. It has been now reintroduced in the current session in, in 2011, and just, just a few weeks ago, just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I, this is a, a law that would basically say as follows. If you are an owner and you are being foreclosed upon, uh, when you get notice of foreclosure, you have 25 business days to go to court and petition to become a tenant. So instead of, it, it, you do it's basically surrender the deed. It, it, you'd give it what they call a, a deed in lieu of foreclosure. You would surrender your deed to the property. You'd say, okay, you're right. I can't afford to be a homeowner, which I think is a problem that a lot of people are facing right now. They, they can't afford to be a homeowner at all. You know, There's no way. It just can't work. So you would then become a tenant. You would have a right. The, the court could force the bank to allow you to become a tenant. So you'd pay, and, and, and they would have... An independent party decide what the rent should be. It would be fair market value rent. The bank would get the rent. You'd pay your rent to the bank for up to five years. And that way you would not be thrown out. The bank, of course, would then have to start paying the assessments to the association. And um, and in the property would not become vacant. The association would not be getting, losing. Because what happens now is when banks foreclose, they often don't pay the assessments. They just refuse to pay the assessments and and so the property has changed hands and it now is in the hands of an owner which is a big bank and they just refuse to pay the assessments and they wait and try to get the person they sell it to eventually to pay them but this is such a terrible situation and this this law is so simple and i think it would really solve the problem of the blighted communities the banks would be getting revenue they wouldn't be holding the property and getting nothing on it they'd be able to pay the taxes pay the assessments and then the owner would have a chance to continue living, keeping their kids in school and, and not disrupting the whole community by getting thrown out on the street and their property put out in the sidewalk.
1: Um, and as when we were talking about this yesterday, I asked you the magical question, what happens now that so many associations have amended their governing documents banning rentals?
2: Yeah, that whole idea is <laughs> that, that whole idea of banning renters That to me is like something from this gilded age that we went through, Uh you know, in the '90s, where when when property values were going through the roof. That is a that is an artifact of a bygone era. You know, that is absolutely uh, that is really really a big mistake. And I've talked with a whole lot of lawyers who practice in this field, who represent associations and everything else, and I haven't found anybody who thinks these days that those 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 uh, document amendments make a bit of sense. Banning renters, it makes absolutely no sense in this market.
1: But it was during the last economic downturn that they started to become popular that I became aware of because people were renting their units out when they had to move and couldn't sell them because they were underwater, And so the associations decided they really didn't want all these tenants in here. They would rather have the vacant units, the foreclosed units, what have you. And they sold it. To the homeowners, and the homeowners voted it in, and well, and now it's I think coming back to bite them. But
2: well, it was a very popular document amendment. It, all, yeah. it always has been. Um, Maybe according to some people that I've talked to, the most popular amendment that lawyers were being asked to, to draft banning renters. Uh, but you know, these days I think people view the whole thing very differently. They're more, much more concerned about vacancies. Uh, you know, it's a problem because. The uh, associations have to be you know, legitimately concerned about um, who's living in the property. I don't think it's an illegitimate concern. I, I mean, I can understand them not wanting to be presiding over a, an association that's 90% renters. I can see why they'd not like that.
1: Oh, I can understand that as well, but yeah. all of a sudden it seems the remedy for the situation is to let the right. owners become tenants. Yes, yeah. Technically, right. yeah. Because I mean, the
2: alternative is, is in, in today's market. Right. The alternative is empty units.
1: Right.
2: And that's much worse. And and then you just have an empty unit and no assessments coming in. Whereas you could have potentially, if you if this was structured correctly, you could have the same family living there that's been living in that house. They're just tenants instead of owners. The bank should be, would be paying the assessments. The bank would be getting rents that would enable a fair market rent that would enable them to pay it. And the a local community would be getting their property taxes and on and on. I mean, it, this is one way to go here. But the current situation, where the banks have huge quantities of uh, real estate that they have foreclosed on, these so-called REO, real estate-owned properties mm-hmm. that they have acquired, and they can't sell them, and they're dumping them on the market, de- thereby depressing property values, which then makes it impossible for people to refinance because they're underwater, yeah. and on and on. You know, this, is, this is a downward spiral that we're in here, and I, I, I think it's possible that you know, one way to begin to turn this around and to make these communities more attractive instead of becoming blighted with vacancies and squatters and so forth, abandoned properties, with windows broken out and the banks are paying no attention to, I mean, the one way to turn this around would be not to throw the owner out of their property. If you think about it, I mean, the whole mortgage industry has always been premised on the notion that if people lived in the home that they borrowed money to buy, they'd pay back the loan. Because they lived there. This was their home. It was not just an investment. Mm -hmm. It was their home. And what happened with this craziness that started in the mid-'90s was this idea of turning the home uh, home ownership into a form of radical speculation. Yeah. And that is what—that is where the problem comes from. When people started speculating with buying houses they couldn't afford, thinking they were going to get rich, and it went on and on, and on until the whole market collapsed. If, if, if we somehow get back to this notion, which is a, a, I think, a valid notion, that people will pay back a loan, if, if for a reasonable amount of money, a reasonable rate, to 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 pay the mortgage on a home where they actually live, that that actually is a wise investment. If we get back to that you have a foundation for a restored market. But you've got to get the speculation of it because that's, that's, that's the craziness.
1: Well, I think you've got to get people rethinking things. Right now, you know, it's an investment. and With associations, they'll tell you the reason you need an association is to protect property values. So property values has become the god that everybody seems to worship right. at this point.
0: Right.
1: And I think that whole notion has got to be changed around, and it's got to come down to pride of ownership and pride of home unfortunately the whole design of the association mentality is counter, counters that whole notion of having pride and being able to do anything in your home without having to get permission to do things you know you're not allowed to breathe right people are getting written up because their kids' bikes are sitting in the front yard while they go into the bathroom or go into the, you know, stupid, stupid stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I know, it's
2: just crazy. Yeah, and, and even even more fundamental than that, um, you know, many, many people in the post-World War II housing boom uh, added value to their homes by, you know, putting on a room or constructing a porch or right. adding a pool. Now, uh, and they, they, they would go to their local... Authorities and there was a zoning code and a building code, and they'd comply with that, and and they would go off and do it, and nobody bugged them. Right. Because they didn't have to go to their neighbors. Now they have to go to their neighbors. And now it turns out your neighbor doesn't want you to have a pool, because it might make your house look better than his, or your neighbor doesn't want you to have a swing set. I mean, this, this just nutso craziness that goes on now, because we've devolved government power on people who don't know how to use it.
1: Or, you know, you're using the wrong shade of white and you're going yeah. to devalue property values. And it's just because they don't like you or they don't want you to do something. Yeah. I, it, it's ridiculous.
2: Yeah, and I don't, you know, I, I've never really understood, uh, you know, there's, a, there's various explanations for why common interest housing evolved the way it did. But one of the things that I have never understood, and it's, it's got to be some kind of a cultural thing, is this, this idea that, that many people have that sameness, that uniformity, in a in a community is good for property values, because I don't think that's true. If you it if sounds. you look at, at more exp- if you go up up the economic ladder to communities that are really worth a lot more money, where wealthier people live, um, at, at, at more expensive homeowner association developments, the homes are built differently. They're not the same. They're not the same. I've never been in a really upscale community. I've been in a lot of them, you know, driving around, looking at them in various conferences and tours and this and that and the other, and I'm representing associations. I've been, if you look at the places where rich people live, they're, they may never have a house the same as their neighbors.
1: No, they won't. Now,
2: why did, why did people start thinking <laughs> that, if you, that if you're moving up into the middle class, you want a house exactly like your neighbors i think it's just nonsense it's it's a way of saving money on design and construction costs that's all it is and the idea that you have to stay like this forever is
1: nuts well the but- thing is it's dated i mean you go to places like reston reston's one of the original big planned communities and they had the color codes and it, you know the stuff, the the colors that they used in the 60s and the 70s, you guys remember the avocado greens and the browns? Yeah. And, you know, they're all over Reston, but the thing is, they're written into the Covenant, so it looks dated. It looks Did old, you, it looks dated.
2: And even even worse example of that is if you a few years ago, there was a terrible fire in the western part of the San Diego area. There were fires all over Southern California. It was a big fire season. And um, there were a number of of uh, homeowner association-run properties, uh, where there are these deed restrictions in place, where houses were burned down. One of the reasons they burned was because they had shake roofs or wood wood shingle roofs called shakes. Yeah. And so the owners got their insurance money, and they go back to reconstruct, and they they find a different type of shingle, and along comes the association president and tells them, Whoa.
1: And you can't have that.
2: You can't do that. (laughs) You've got to put wood shakes back on your
1: roof. Yeah, they do that all over the place. <laughs>
2: Complete—it's just absolute insanity. And you know, I mean, you under- you can understand why developers during the during the build-out phase and when they're controlling the associates, you can understand for marketing reasons why they don't want people doing making ch- big changes in anything. You can understand it because they're trying to sell these houses to people. They don't want anything to look different and odd and weird. I, I, I get that. I understand. I'm not sure that it necessarily makes sense, but fine, I understand but for the owners to continue to oppress each other after they take over the association is is really really unfortunate and crazy
1: you know at at one point what the developers were doing in the in the uh, governing documents they were imposing these restrictions and they said you couldn't make any changes for a period of so many years and that was during their time when they were in the association and they were building once they left that died and that was gone that was no uh-huh. longer an issue and now you could do you know you could change colors and you could change all that subject to you know to architectural control approval but and that's where the problems start right
2: well again you get you know the the problems often occur when you move from a professional running things according to some idea of what they're trying to accomplish, to, the, to turning it over to, to a, some cabal of people or one person with a bunch of strange ideas. And, you know, this is one of the fundamental problems of this type of housing. Uh, often, it, it, and it happens in a condo, it's the difference between having a landlord and having a condo board. And in HOA, it's the difference between having you know, a municipality or even a developer running it and your neighbors. I mean, it, that, what, that transition is such a risky one because of the lack of expertise and the, and the lack of predictability in terms of what kind of people you're going to get. I mean, some associations have really, really nice people running them, and, and they get along just fine, and they have common sense, and they don't bug each other. I know people who live in such associations.
1: But you're one election away from having all of that change
2: right and in almost every case er, i mean everyone says the same thing in almost every development there's only a small group of people who want to run things and and you have to hope that they're good people because if they're not you're in terrible terrible trouble and there's no remedy so you know unless government I don't know who else could do this. I mean, you can't, I don't believe the industries police themselves particularly well. I don't believe Neither the real would. estate industry. I'm certainly not the, the property managers and the lawyers who are getting rich off the dysfunction. They're not going to They're not going to solve the problems. There's just no way, and it's, it's just never, ever, ever going to happen that they're going to solve the problems. I don't see who else can do it except state and local governments. I mean, unless the federal government wants to get involved, they, I don't think they're going to be very, you know, um, amenable to that, so it's really ma- mostly matters of state law anyway. So the state governments have to get involved and try to first um, create regulations that, re- that that require some sort of training and compliance with state standards. They've got to live up to public standards, and then secondly. There's got to be a way to hold people accountable for not doing it. There's got to be a low-cost dispute resolution mechanism. We've got to stop defaulting to the uh, trial courts, the state trial courts. It's simply an unworkable way to do things. And there's, I think everybody knows that, but the, that, that's what has to happen.
1: There's so many lawsuits going on right now, Evan. I, I hear from people all the time. They send me their cases. The stories that I'm not really allowed to talk about because they're in litigation will make your hair curl and the things that the industry attorneys are doing at these you know in these associations is just unbelievable
2: yeah, unbelievable I, I, I know I, I know oh, I, I, I hear a lot of these stories too yeah. I, I heard one just the other day that um, just flat involves serious criminality
1: yeah
2: and um and where people are actually afraid
1: mm-hmm.
2: of their association um
1: they're afraid of, them of them
2: They're yeah they're afraid they're actually afraid and, uh, and for, probably for good reason because what's going on is in fact criminality and yet when it's brought to the attention of the state's attorney they say oh this is a civil matter Well, no actually i mean can you imagine if if, if someone in your bank was stealing money from your account And you went to the state's attorney's office, and they told you, um, oh, that's a civil matter. You could sue them for that. Well, yeah, I could sue them. It's also theft. How about that? You know?
1: I Uh, got an email today from someone in California saying that in California there's a law, a statute that says the association cannot foreclose until you've been overdue you know, passed you for your assessments by eight by um I think a year. And this person who wrote to me said that she'd been she'd missed three payments that amounted to somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred and twenty dollars. But she said she now owes owes over three thousand dollars because they've added all of these charges and things and every time she tries to make the payments they refuse to accept her check. She says they're running it up to the one-year mark so they can go ahead and foreclose. Yeah, You know, that's criminal. That is absolutely... And so many people tell me, you know, I've been trying to send these checks, and they won't cash them. They'll just return them.
2: Oh, I've heard of many examples like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're just trying to run up the assessments. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, run up the the fees and charges. Uh, But, you know... Uh, the only fix, I think the only fix for this is is legislation I I like to think that there would be some other way short of a state law to do this or but there doesn't seem to be either state or, or you get local prosecutors involved but I think the answer has to be from government and it, I, I'm not saying that there has to be um, a new regulatory agency although I think the ombudsman idea has some merit but there, there, ha- there has to be um, standards, there has to be training, and there has to be a mechanism for, for getting people to live up to those standards. And, and I don't see where those will come from, except from state governments. Or it could be locality, and it could be municipalities, but you have to have standards, you have to educate people about those standards, and there has to be a mechanism for holding them to those standards. And right now, um, that's, I think we have a lot of work to do on all three of those.
1: I think there's there needs to be enforcement. There's no place for the homeowner to go. We have an ombudsman. Ombudsman's not there for that. The ombudsman's there in case you get a proxy in the mail and you don't know what it is, so you call the ombudsman and you say, I got this proxy in the mail. What do I do with it? That's what the, the ombudsman's there for. It's costing us a lot of money to have this huge panel of People sitting there, but that's the only thing the ombudsman's entitled to do allowed to do you know yeah. there has to be some real enforcement someplace
2: yeah no, I, I agree there's that's that's been this has been a problem for a very long time and it continues to be it's a very very serious problem but you know the funny part is uh, you know the municipalities that are promoting all this and going along with it they, they seem to feel they can continue to wash their hands of yes. all the problems. They seem to feel. But at, there's a point where, uh, and I think it's happening. I think it's actually beginning to happen with all these foreclosures and people walking away and abandoned properties. There's a point where the problems become problems for local government. And I, I don't know that that's why I think the situation is not really sustainable. There's a point where... Um, the discontent becomes a problem, uh, for example, you see judges getting uh, i've heard judges say things like another one of these cases with these associations, and uh, why can't you people get along with each other? Yeah. <laughs> this is a yeah. judge raving about that in a case I was involved with you know another one of these cases. why do I keep getting these cases? Well, you know, do you have half an hour? I'll be glad to explain <laughs> it to you you know. You're gonna get a lot more.
1: Why don't you get along? I love that one. I've heard that one from a number of different judges. Why can't you people just get along?
2: Yeah. Why can't you just get along? Well, how about because they're <laughs> they're throwing people out of their homes. They're stealing from them. They're 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 running banana republic elections. You know, how about that? We're supposed people are supposed to put up with that. The thing is, you know, judges can Some judges can be educated about these issues over the course of a, of a, a case, and can begin to understand what's going on, but uh, I just think, um, you know, over time, it's, like I said, like water dripping on a stone, over time, government officials at all levels are getting more and more educated about this, and the direction is, I think, toward more regulation rather than less. And It, it may take a long time, but that's where we're headed.
1: And Virginia? Go ahead. I'm sorry. In Virginia, they are, you know, um, enacting legislation. However, they're getting all their information from CAI. So the legislation that's coming out is not necessarily consumer or homeowner friendly. Yeah. It just increases the powers of, of the association and okay. the industry.
2: Well, but you see, then we get back. That's true. But look, you, you there's what are they supposed to do? There are... If, if they are going to hear from anyone other than the industry, someone has to be organized in and fund a group to counter what the industry is going to say. That's there true. is nothing wrong. There is nothing wrong with a trade association trying to influence government. It is perfectly legal. There's nothing wrong with it. I agree. And this whole bad guy theory that people keep espousing, it's terrible that CAI does this. No, it isn't. They're taking dues from their member to do this. It is perfectly, it's protected by the First Amendment. It's called petitioning the government for redress of grievances. It is protected interest group activity. They are, they should, that's what they're supposed to do. That doesn't mean they're supposed to win, but they're supposed to try to influence the government. And the consumers who are on the other side, are they're supposed to get organized, and they're supposed yeah. to present a different p- picture, and they're supposed to try to influence these legisl- legislators. And if they won't do it, then guess what? They're going to lose.
1: That's true. That's absolutely true.
2: I but mean, it's totally predictable that they're going to, it's CAI is going to do this. Of course, they're a trade association. What do you expect them to do?
1: No, I, I understand. But all the legislation that you, you talk about, the regulations that are coming and that are being put in place, but the regulations, a lot of the regulations that I see either have no teeth in them, you still have to go right. to court, or they increase the powers of the association because yeah. the homeowners are not organized and, and you're not, absolutely yeah. true
2: if they're not at the table and they don't have proposals they don't have realistic proposals and they can't talk the language of public policy it's, they're going to get steamrolled and the laws that come out will be toothless or worse and,
1: and that's know? what's happening
2: yeah it's it certainly uh, and this is a state-by-state battle but you have to be organized i think like cai is organized if you look how they're set up they are set up to function as local chapters and And then to use draw from those local chapters to to create state political action committees. see so they have these local chapters of one organization all around the various parts of the state you know, and then they create a, a legislative action committee for each state, and they draw people from those local chapters who are who serve in these legislative action committees who function as their as their lobby, in-house lobbyists, basically. They also hire professional lobbyists as well. And then they have also a national organization that tries to keep everything kind of coherent uh, on a national basis and keep it all together. So it's basically one organization with a lot of chapters and state-level organization for its Legislative Action Committee. Well, how are the consumers organized? How are the owners organized? And the answer is they're not They're not well organized. Uh, there are a lot of small organizations, some that have been very effective at times, very effective at times in certain states. Yes. Yeah. And, but but uh, they're not unified and we've, you and I have talked about this a number of times. you know Somehow there's got to be more unity and, and all this backbiting and backstabbing and credit claiming and uh, you know kicking people off of the other people's message boards. I know, and, you know people get mad every time, every time I say anything or write anything somebody comes out and starts accusing me of being some industry stooge because I don't want to run around proclaiming that all the associations in the country should be abolished tomorrow. You know, if this is the kind of, if this is the level of discourse that that critics are going to have, if this is the level of it, then of course the industry is going to win.
1: Right now you've got some, as you pointed out, you've got some groups that are very effective. I think one of the big disadvantages that we face is that we're homeowners we're not professionals right and what we need is is a group you need to hire professionals so that you can fight fire with fire and what we have right now is just you know a group of hoi polloi. i mean well meaning they're they're upset and they're willing to put in the work but we're not you know we're not dealing on an equal footing there's always an right. imbalance here
2: oh that's right and this this is always the problem with consumers, that they, the producer interests are always better organized than the consumer interests, because the producer interests have more of an individual stake. The, the average attorney or property manager, because they make their living this way, they have a huge personal economic stake mm-hmm. in whatever comes from the policy mm-hmm. process, whereas each individual owner, if you look at the size of their individual stake, in most cases they say, well, geez, you know, why should I... 50 bucks a year on dues or t- 20 bucks to go to this educational program or why should I buy this book or whatever because really you know it's, I, my stake in it isn't that big and, they, and they'll
1: right.
2: you know and, and so consumers tend not to be organized. Um, but as we have discussed before, there are ways of getting around that and I think you know if, if people were to set aside some of their differences and their egos,
1: that's the um, big one—is the egos, isn't it?
2: It is because we have a whole lot of people who want to yes. be, who think that their their take on it is the authoritative one. Yep. And and everybody else is a is a traitor for not subscribing to their theory, and uh, and on and on and on. And, and particularly people who get involved in the policy process, which which does not lend itself to radical solutions ever. And so, if you do get involved in the policy process, you you're in the realm of incrementalism, and compromise. And as soon as you do that. As soon as you do that, all these zealots come out of the woodwork and start screaming about how you're a terrible sellout. The minute you try to make any incremental progress at all to try to improve the situation, it's just like an SDS meeting from the 1960s, you know, (laughs) where as soon as somebody said, well, you know, maybe we could get this from the administration, suddenly you've got some Marxists screaming at you for being the the, the tool of everything the system stands for. You know, we're going to burn it all down. These pseudo-revolutionaries who sit around and, and, and insult everybody, they go straight to insult and vilification, you know, at the drop of a hat. This is what is the death of, of any kind of progress at all With these people. They will not allow anyone to make any progress. they got to squelch it and get on their self-righteous horse and start denouncing people. And, you know, uh, that's where does that leave us? Where we are. Of, yeah where we are with with cai
1: where and other are. trade
2: associations and other insurance companies and banks running the policy process and deciding how people are going to live so congratulations you have succeeded in stopping it you know uh that's basically uh, that's that's one of the the things that that has to be overcome if the owners are going to get organized is they've got to get people um Maybe. Just to think in terms of what can actually be accomplished.
1: Maybe the idea is to have, the solution is to hire professionals. And you're not going to be happy with everything, but people whose full-time job it is to to do that, as opposed to doing it on weekends and yeah. after, after, dinner, after okay. homework and the dishes are done. Yeah, but
2: that's true, Shu. But then what will happen when you hire that professional? The professional lobbyist will come to you and say, okay, look, here's how much we can actually get. Here's something. Here's a realistic goal, and if if the and if you have in the group that has hired this professional someone who is convinced that the whole institution has to be abolished, and 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 would be, is perfectly content to continue saying that for the next 20 years, even though it never happens, <laughs> you know, the lobbyists are point going to say, "Well, I'm sorry, I can't get you that.
1: Can't, can't, that
2: cannot be done.
1: Can't abolish it today, but for now, this is what we're going to do." Evan, thank right. you so much for. Would you believe we're out of time?
2: Well, I'm sorry to hear that, but we can do it again, uh, maybe when you have a copy of the book in your hand.
1: Is that a promise?
2: Sure, you can tell me where I went wrong.
1: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And the book is called Beyond Privatopia, Rethinking Residential Private Government. I can't wait to read it.
2: Right, Urban Institute Press, and if people want to get the link, uh, it's right at privatopia.blogspot.com. Thank
1: you very much, Evan.
2: Thank you, Shu.
1: will talk to you soon, I hope. Oh, I hope so. Thanks. Bye. On the Commons is produced by OTC Multimedia Productions.
0: Well, I finally bought my dream home to enjoy retirement life. I've made new friends and buddies, lots of parties for my wife. It seemed that life was perfect, all my neighbors felt the same. Then along came death by CCRs, life's over, I'm fair game. Those petty rules and regulations, it's enough to make you cry. They're full of woes, no pink flamingos, someone tell us why. Slick managers and lawyers slither close, but they won't tell Why our dream home should remind us We bought a one-way ticket to hell Now there's lots of open meetings Close to Justice 4-H-O Those arrogant board members Say what they want you to know The CAI and ULI will help you lose it all But I wouldn't sell that dream home, yet the writing's on the wall. Those petty rules and regulations, it's enough to make you cry. They're full of woes, no pink flamingos, someone tell us why. Slick managers and lawyers slither close, but they won't tell. Why our dream home should remind us we bought a one-way ticket to hell.